Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. And hello to everyone listening to us. Let's dive into the issue of immigration. French Parliament has spent three days debating reforms this week. Yeah, this was a promise that Emmanuel Macron made. He said that the second half of his presidency, so right now, he mm -hmm. would tackle this issue maybe with an idea for the upcoming local elections that are happening in the spring. Immigration is the main point of divergence between Macron's party and its main rival, the hard-right National Rally Party led by Marine Le Pen. Beyond those political issues, we're talking about real people here. And what's interesting, Sarah, is to look at what's actually happening on the ground. And there is some positive stuff going on. Since 2015, when the so-called migrant crisis broke with all these refugees coming over from war-torn Syria. Like more than a million of them. A lot of them ended up in Germany, but quite a few here in France. Yeah, and many of them here in France have now been resettled in towns and villages across the country. More than 8,000 from Syria and sub-Saharan Africa have been resettled just this year. Year. They've been spread out in regions with low populations, like in Corrèze, for example, in central France. That's the home of uh, Jacques Chirac, right? The former president who just passed away. That's right. Now, the département has welcomed 65 refugees. It's all part of a resettlement program that was set up after the migrant camps in Calais were dismantled. So 20 uh, refugees from Afghanistan, Syria and Sudan, they've ended up in a small town called Uzerche, which has a population of uh, just 3,000. Um, that was actually in 2016 when they first came. Sylvie Coffey went there to see what was going on and she met with the mayor, he's called Jean-Paul Grador, and he admitted that in the beginning it wasn't easy bridging the divide between these different cultures. The first time we met, we didn't even know how to communicate. We garbled a few words of English, we used our hands. I brought an atlas so they could show us where they came from and to show them where Uzerche was on the map. And then we gradually built up a relation with them. Some of the youngsters had obviously suffered. We got called in the middle of the night several times. They'd had panic attacks. We had to reassure them. But in a way, that's all part of the adventure, discovering things you don't know. But Sarah, the mayor is convinced that welcoming these refugees has been beneficial both to the local community and to the refugees themselves. Welcoming these families has meant we could fill up our schools and open up social housing that was unoccupied. All that is positive. I imagine, though, not everyone agrees with this. Some clearly do. They're working as volunteers teaching French, for example. But uh, there are some who, who are not convinced, like this man who preferred not to be named. He's not sure that the refugees from the Middle East and Africa can make the cultural leap. We don't know much about them. I don't know what they do, whether they work or not. We've got no idea. The problems begin where there are a lot of them, but there aren't many here. That said, I'm not sure they'll manage to fit into our country way of life. There's a huge difference between camels and cows. They're not quite the same, if you see what I mean. I don't know if they'll be able to adapt to our local economy. Hmm, interesting there. So um, not everyone is convinced on board, yeah. on board but the, the, the migrants themselves, though, how are they adapting? Well, Alkozi Faisal, he's a 26-year-old Afghan. He's settled down very well in Corrèze, and for him that proves that refugees can adapt to life in the French countryside. Honestly, I'm proof of this. I've stayed in the region. I didn't leave Corrèze because I don't much care for the big towns. 
Of course, I had to find work. You can't live otherwise. I have a full-time contract working in international commerce, so I travel quite a bit. It's good for me. He speaks pretty good French there. Um, I imagine that really does help to fit in. Yes, and not everyone is quite so at ease. But that doesn't mean you can't earn a living at all. You can be self-employed. Uh, that's what 55-year-old Cher from Syria has done. He, he lost everything during the war in Syria, including his factory, which was completely destroyed. He's now built a new life in Uzerche with his wife and two kids. C'est mon restaurant. This is my restaurant. I've created my own business with my family. Started a new life in France with this fast food kebab restaurant using Syrian recipes. It's called Porto. It means we are four in our family, me, my wife, and two sons. And, Sarah, this won't be the end of the story because the area will soon be getting an official reception centre for refugees known as a Kada. So more refugees coming in, maybe more in an official capacity. Um, there are really places all up and down France that are doing this. Yeah, but the hard right is pushing the idea that uh, we really have to cut back on immigration full stop, that France is being overtaken by migrants. On Monday this week, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the National Rally Party, said France was being being veritably submerged. Of course, that echoes uh, the so-called Great Replacement Theory, which uh, started here in France, whereby the country is being allegedly run over by foreigners, Muslims in particular. Well, of course, that's been debunked as Absolutely. a conspiracy theory. It's not at all true, because when you look at the numbers, it's just it's really just not true. The National Statistics Office, INSEE, has just published its figures for 2018. And they showed that six and a half million immigrants are now living in France. That's close to 10% of the population. Including you and me. Indeed. <laughs> but more than a third of those have French nationality. So that knocks you out. So that <laughs> brings it down to 7%. So if we put that in a European context, the average across Europe is 8%. Germany has the most with 12% of its population and the UK 9%. So this idea that France is being overrun by immigration is an exaggeration. But so that is, you know, all immigrants put together, 7% of the population. But a lot of the talk and a lot of the critiques is about this so-called illegal immigration. Yeah, and of course, that is necessarily much more difficult to evaluate because precisely it's illegal. But if you look at access to AME, which is the medical aid, which covers migrants who, who don't have their documents, in 2018, 318,000 people benefited from that aid. Of course, the true number of people is probably a little higher than that. So not maybe as many people as some are trying to make out. And then there are the asylum requests. Which, of course, are not illegal. Countries have international obligations to welcome asylum seekers. They have legal rights to ask for protection. Yeah, and critics of the government have made a lot of the fact that while asylum requests across Europe as a whole have gone down, went down last year, in France, they increased by 22% to nearly 123,000. But that, of course, is just requests, right? Only 33,000 were actually granted asylum, which is a bit of an increase over last year, I think 4%, mm -hmm. but much less than this 22%. Yeah. So, so much for the numbers, but what are these numbers? What kind of impact are they actually having on French society? Well, from an economic perspective, a report was published on Wednesday this week by around 30 economists, and it showed that 
these new arrivals actually contribute more to the French economy than they cost. So the idea that somehow they're weighing the country down is not true. Um, it's not true that France is welcoming misery because a lot of these migrants are skilled. Migrants coming from sub-Saharan Africa have, on average, a better level of education than people already living in metropolitan France. Which, of course, does contribute to the brain drain in, in their own countries, which isn't really great for the development there. Indeed. And it's true that migrants cost more because they receive more welfare benefits. But the audit also showed that while migrants are more likely to be unemployed and that those in work have lower than average salaries, most immigrants are in work. And that means they're contributing to pension fund. And because the majority of them are between the ages of 25 and 50, they're not yet claiming a pension. So for the moment, that's a plus for France, which is struggling with pension reform. Yeah, so lots of facts and figures there. But really, ultimately, regardless of what the numbers say, this is a political issue, right? And each is going to paint the picture that they want. Um, Though it is important, of course, to remember that it's not all bad for everyone. All right, Alison, here's a vocabulary word for you. Mongolfier. Hot air balloon. Right, so do you ever wonder how it got such a strange name in French? I haven't, but I think you're going to tell me why. How? <laughs> yeah, well, so it's one of those French words that carries its inventor's name. Like so, Hoover. Like Hoover or like uh, Frisbee. Well, that's the company that invented it. Anyway, yeah. Montgolfier, yeah. Joseph Michel and Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier were brothers. They developed the first hot air balloons to carry people. 236 years ago this week, October 15, 1783, they launched the first successful human flight. On board was a chemistry and physics teacher, notably not one of the brothers. <laughs> um, it was tethered to the ground, flew nearly four minutes. Then came the first free flight with no tether. That was in November with two noblemen flying from Paris to the suburbs, about nine kilometers in 25 minutes. And that, interestingly, was witnessed by Benjamin Franklin, who nine, wrote about it. Nine kilometers in 25 minutes, actually. Nowadays, it can even take more than that to go from, from Paris, Paris to, the to some of the suburbs. <laughs> but how did these two brothers get to that point? Yeah, so lots of experimentation. Um, the Montgolfier brothers were two of 16 children. They became well-known paper manufacturers in Annonay and Ardèche in central France. It's not really clear how they got interested in flying. There's a legend that one of the two brothers noticed laundry that was rising over a fire as it dried and maybe oh, got I inspired. Love, I love the way he was fluttering. watching the laundry dry Indeed. rather than actually doing the laundry anyway. <laughs> and they started to experiment on little models made out of light wood, covered with fabric, filled with air. It was in June of 1783, so four months before that first manned flight, that they flew the first full-scale version empty. And that drew the attention of the king, Louis XIV, who he requested his own demonstration. As the Sun King would. <laughs> and the news traveled. Indeed. And for the show for the king, they wanted the balloon to carry passengers. The king suggested putting prisoners on board. The Mongolfia brothers decided to put animals on board. <laughs> early animal experimentation there. <laughs> yeah. So it was a duck. So the duck was used to flying high. So it was the control subject. There was a rooster. 
and a sheep because it was relatively human shaped and apparently had a name, uh, Ciel or climb into the sky. <laughs> so on September 19th, 1783, they set up the balloon, 18 and a half meters high, 13 meters in diameter. It was made of blue fabric, decorated in gold, fit for the Sun King. And 130,000 people showed up for the flight. What a show. Yeah. could have been there. <laughs> the animals were put in a cage hanging under the balloon. A cannon announced the liftoff and the balloon lifted 600 meters in the air. It started floating down slowly because it got a tear in it. And was it successful? Well, the animals were unharmed. It landed in a wooded area like three kilometers away after eight minutes. And it paved the way for the manned flights later. And the rest, as they say, is history. Interestingly, the Montgolfier brothers never really figured out how their invention actually worked. Apparently, they thought they'd discovered some new kind of gas that was lighter than air, and they called it Montgolfier gas. Of course, that gas was just air, hot air, so lighter than the surrounding air, which made the balloons rise. So plus one for science. Let's go to the movies now. Je vais être brusque. Allez-y. On n'a pas l'impression de plus pouvoir régler un seul problème. Moi, je pense que ces saisons, les citoyens ont l'impression. So that's the trailer for Alice et le Maire, Alice and the Mayor. It's a movie that came out in France this week. And the premise intrigued me. It's the story of the longtime mayor of Lyon, played by Fabrice Lucini, a very popular French actor, who's lost his drive or even his ideas. J'arrive plus à penser, plus du tout. Voyez-moi, j'ai toujours eu des idées. I have no more ideas, he says here in this clip. And his staff hires a young woman, Alice, played by Anaïs de Moustier. The character is highly educated. She's just come back to France after teaching philosophy at Oxford. Donc vous êtes la philosophe? Euh, je sais pas, enfin, non, je suis pas du tout philosophe. Are you a philosopher, he asks. And she says, not really, but I've read philosophy. And she's supposed to talk to the mayor and inspire new ideas. The film takes place mostly inside Lyon City Hall, and you get to see the day-to-day -day political workings of this large French city. I went to go see the movie with our resident film critic, Rosalind Hyams. It was the first show on a Monday morning, and the theater was relatively full, which was surprising. She and I sat down in the theater's cafe right after to talk about what we both decided was a very, very French film. It's a very French film because it's, it's so French, French, isn't it? Yeah. More dialogue than action. It almost felt like I was watching a play. It's very much like a play. It's very contained. And some of the characters come across, and even the two main characters, Alice and the Mayor, they come across as not being perhaps fully dimensional. Yeah, you almost, there are situations there where, like, why is she not reacting? Or why doesn't she look surprised? Or was it, why doesn't she even look concerned? At some point, she, she, Alice is invited. The mayor wants her to come see him. It's like 10.30 at night. Everything's dark in City Hall. And she walks down, and you're just like, well, of course there's going to be some kind of sexual tension or whatever. And she shows up, and he talks to her about putting on his Birkenstocks. And she doesn't seem phased. And I don't know, for me, it didn't really seem realistic. Barrison never plays on any kind of attraction or seduction between these two characters. That's quite un-French, isn't it? We think about French films, perhaps we have a sort of cliched idea of French films where it's got to be about romance, sex. But in fact, this is goes against all that. And perhaps part of this film is being emotionally removed. And that perhaps is important in politics. She's supposed to be a philosopher or a quasi-philosopher. She's interested in philosophy. The, and the film throws up all these ideas, in fact. So all the characters are just human vehicles for 
these ideas. And so what are these ideas? So the, the premise, of course, is this young woman who finishes her studies. Presumably she's this brilliant woman. She is. She's very smart. She always has an answer. And she's hired um, by the staff at the city hall to give ideas to the mayor who seems to have run out of steam and has been doing this for his whole life. One of the questions is, um, where's the philosophy in politics? Democracy started out as something philosophical. Then where are we with it today? There's a point where the mayor says that voters no longer seem to be interested in their rights and democracy. They seem to be pulling away from democracy. Yeah, and sort of talking about populism and that kind of thing. So it's a very, I mean, a lot of these ideas are really relevant looking at France today. So we're in Lyon. This is a socialist mayor. Will he run for president? Will he not? Um, he's disillusioned. Well, he's, it's been, she points out to him that his socialism maybe is running out of steam. At the moment in France, the Socialist Party is, we think, calling itself into question. It's definitely been called into question by a lot of its faithful, loyal voters. Macron kind of took them all, and they did very, very badly in the last election. And we're coming up to municipal elections in France in 2020. This film's in interesting also because you're looking at a very big city, Lyon, the second city in France. A lot of power there. Um, We see in the decor as well, City Hall is like a palace. Oh yeah, the the opening scene, yeah, they're chandeliers and gilded. The director really sets the scene in that way to show that here we are in like a almost a princedom. And but I think that's where the disconnect goes, right? She brings up this idea of, you know, what is it to be on the left? How connected do you need to be to the actual people? And we see these very ornate and very everyone in suits. You don't really see any normal people. And are communications more important than politics? What does politics mean today? Does it mean just communications we see in the US? Trump we've seen in the UK with Brexit. Do you think this is an optimistic film about French politics or pessimistic or just sort of an observation? I mean, you could tell that there's definitely a critique of the left going on here. But should we take it more as sort of just, here's a documentary, here's my view of how politics is, here's a snapshot today? I do suspect that the director is trying to encourage people to take politics more seriously and to be actually involved in it themselves that it isn't you can't rely on the politicians because they're so far removed in their gilded palace basically yes but they are the people who have the control over doing or not doing for the people don't let them spend on crazy projects just for their own career opportunities for their own ambition For me, what I get out of this film is look at your own responsibility and if you have a vote, use it well. But it's interesting because that conscience comes from this character, Alice, who is an outsider, right? She's actually educated in one of the highest, the elite French schools, the École Normale Supérieure. And then she goes and teaches philosophy at Oxford. She's very blasé about it. Super blasé. And and again, for me, that's part of this film, I think, is also just a depiction of that person or that generation, this 30-something who's super well-educated, really smart, like the ideal product of the French education system. And she kind of becomes the voice, the little moral voice on the mayor's shoulder. But is she really the voice of the people either? I think, actually, the film shows this elite 
I mean, that's where the focus is. This does tell us something then, yeah, about that generation of, of people who are trained to have certain ideals and ideas and what do you want to do with your life? That's one thing that she and her friends talk about and they don't really know. You see that disconnect between the sort of really educated elite who seems kind of lost. Yeah, and the other question is, are all these characters disconnected from the real world? I found that this movie definitely, like we said in the beginning, is a really French film. I kind of like the idea that it had this kind of quasi-documentary feel, like you're getting to look behind the scenes in this big city hall, and there's all these ideas being thrown around. Sometimes I couldn't even follow it. You know, you have to really pay attention. Um, Ultimately, yeah, do you think this helps French people understand themselves more? I think that it might have people who are in the more privileged sector of French society perhaps call into question their way of being and and thinking. Certainly it's meant to make the Socialist Party think a little bit about where it's headed. Um, I think that it probably is a film that remains in a sort of more intellectual sphere. Uh, Quite niche, actually. It is quite a niche film, but a lot of the more than 250 French films that are made a year are quite niche. I do think this is interesting for anybody who's interested in in France and the way things work, and maybe French politics as well. Um, So I think it is a good insight from the outside, so long as you can get the subtitles uh, for people who are interested in France. So, Sarah, it's interesting. This film's coming out uh, just about six months before local elections, which are slated for the spring, where French are going to be voting for their mayors. Yeah, the director apparently claims it had nothing to do with it. It was just a happenstance of the production mm. schedule. Mm, we'll see yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of fun because an opinion poll published just this week showed that nearly two-thirds of the French thought that their mayors were actually doing a decent job. They use words like, they describe them as competent, honest, authoritative. Mayors are by far the most popular of elected officials in France. They have really the most connection, actually, with people. If you think about it, there are 36,000 mayors in France, so everyone has some kind of connection with their mayor if they're in any smaller city. Exactly. They're easy to get access to, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is not the case with members of the government. So it'd be interesting to see whether this film has an impact on the popularity of French mayors. And it's worth noting, too, that the polls showed that some 84% of people said they would never want to be one. I have to say, this movie doesn't necessarily make you want to be mayor either. Sarah, before we end, I want to bring up something that struck me this week. You know, we're we're continuing to see the fallout from last Thursday's knife attack at the Paris police headquarters. Right, that was an IT worker in the building. Now, it turns out he was radicalized. He killed three police officers and an administrative worker with a knife before he was shot dead by the police. On Tuesday, at the official ceremony in tribute to the police officers, President Emmanuel Macron raised the spectre of Islamist radicalism in France, said the administrative services of the state on their own would not be able to overcome what he called the Islamist hydra. That's in, that's intense, a hydra. Yeah, exactly, this sort of multi-headed, sprouting thing from mm. the ground that you know you don't really control to mm. a certain extent. He called for a society of vigilance and he said it was up to the entire nation to unite, mobilise and be ready to act. So... It feels as if now we're all being expected to look out for signs which could show that people are at risk of being influenced by these Islamist extremist networks. And the Interior Minister, Christophe Castaner, elaborated on this. He was speaking to Parliament on Tuesday and he brought up signs 
like changes in behavior, and this is his quote, like growing a beard, ostentatious prayer, and rigorous religiosity, particularly during Ramadan. And that, that list didn't really immediately no. convince even those in attendance. There's an MP during that meeting who made a comment that he, Castaner himself, has a beard. And he said, if you were a Muslim, I'd hope that you wouldn't be called out. And that's just it, isn't it? It seems like this whole thing is ripe for abuse. Anyone with a beard or who starts to pray or perhaps converts to Islam can get denounced. So social media has picked up on this. Um, I've noticed it's become kind of a joke, an ironic joke of, of such, with the birth of this hashtag called Signa a musulman call out a Muslim and you see pictures of like Brigitte Bardot who's wearing a headscarf on her head saying call out a Muslim of course she's expressed anti-Islam beliefs or bearded hipsters you mm. know who who don't eat pork because they're vegetarian oh maybe they're maybe they're Muslim so oh, yeah. kind of humorous but but kind of also pointing out the intensity of this comment yeah it's quite full-on and more seriously I think it's not at all compatible with this idea of vivre ensemble which or living together is a kind of almost a, a tenet that successive French governments have really promoted here as a way of expressing a, a secularist tradition, going beyond the idea of having different communities. And it also reminds me of the dark years in France during the occupation in World War II, when there was this obligation for people to denounce Jews to the Nazis. And it proved so successful that as many as a million French people sent letters to the Nazi authorities. And a large number of those historians actually say around about a quarter didn't concern Jews, but in fact were just about betrayals over petty family and neighbour disputes. And as the French wartime historian Laurent Jolie has said, denunciation was a very easy way of getting rid of someone. That's it for Spotlight on France this week. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And your reviews definitely help to get us better known. And we'd love to hear from you. We're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week for more stories about France beyond the baguette. Bye. Bye.